from LPM. Louisville Public Media. Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic. I'm a Jew from Kentucky, that's what I am. The good Lord foresaw it with his infinite plan. Welcome to the Bluegrass Schmooze. I'm Rabbi Ben Freed. It's Shvat, and that means it's time to celebrate Tubi Shvat, which is sort of a Jewish Arbor Day, but we call it the New Year of the Trees. We'll talk about its mystical origins and how we continue to celebrate it to this day. And then we'll kibitz with two Kentuckians who served in the army at Fort Knox, one currently and one back in the 1960s. It's all coming up on the Bluegrass Schmooze. Forever age you with Kentucky, my home. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Rabbi Shani Abramowitz. And I'm Rabbi Ben Freed. This month, we will be talking about the Hebrew month of Shvat. Uh, Shvat comes to us in January time, usually, in the early spring, late winter, early spring. Depends where in the world you're living. Right. True. True. <laughs> and in Shvat, we actually have a very sweet holiday called Tubi Shvat, which comes on the 15th of the Hebrew month of Shvat. And this is Jewish Arbor Day. This is the birthday, the new year of the trees. Um, it's an opportunity for us to express gratitude to the land, to the bounty, um, to the earth that we are so um, lucky to live on um, and benefit from. And it's, you might call it the OG Arbor Day. Um, so I don't know, Ben, if you have any particular Tubishvat memories or Oh yeah, I love Tubishvat. <laughs> um so it's right, so it's a holiday that's pegged towards the idea is it's kind of the first blossoming of the first trees. The specifically there are there are songs and there's ideas that it's the the almond trees actually, the shkedia mm -hmm. that is like first starting to bloom. And in America where I've celebrated this holiday for most of my life, especially in like Michigan or Chicago where you grow up, it can feel very silly to celebrate a holiday in like mid-January, early February, <laughs> that's all about, like, the almond trees blossoming because <laughs> you look outside and you're like, there are three feet of snow out there. <laughs> like, this is, we are not in spring yet. Um, but because the, you know, the calendar was made by people living in the land of Israel, that was when these things were starting to happen. And so it's this really cool holiday of, um, of yeah, of these, of trees starting to bloom, of, uh, of appreciation, as you said, for nature and for trees and, and getting outside, uh, which, again, wasn't always so easy in, in, in what felt like the dead of winter. Uh, but it, it's kind of this reminder of the way that the, the calendar works, that it's supposed to be helping us through the year, that it's saying that, yes, we had, you know, the darkest time and we lit the candles on Hanukkah. Um, but now now we're starting to see those very first little buds of spring and that that is cause for celebration. Yeah, there's a lot of hope, I think, sort of embedded in the observance of Tubishvat. And there are a couple different ways that Jewish communities observe Tubishvat. I think first and foremost, many communities will gather for a Tubishvat Seder. Um, you might be familiar with the word Seder from Passover, from the holiday of Pesach, where we gather for a festive meal and retell the story of the Exodus. And come and back in a few months for a whole lot more on the Passover Seder. <laughs> <laughs> and on Tubishvat, we gather for a similar kind of festive meal. But of course, instead of telling the story of the Exodus, instead of remembering and reenacting the Exodus in such a way that we ourselves feel like we went out of Egypt, we gather around a table and partake of fruits and vegetables, um, things that grow from the earth, and particularly actually the seven species um, that come from the land of Israel and that are mentioned um, a few different times in the Torah, in the Hebrew Bible. Pop quiz, Shani. Name the seven species. Oh, jeez. Go. Do it. All right. Let's see. I can do it in Hebrew. Okay. You okay. do it in Hebrew and I'll do it in English. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have a song from my childhood, right? Okay. Well, now you have to sing the song. Okay. Let's see if I can remember it. 
Eretz chita use ora vegefen uteena uteena verimon Eretz zet chemen udevash. There you go. All right. Never so. do that again. Just kidding. Just <laughs> so kidding. let's see. Chita usora. So that's your wheat and barley. Mm-hmm. Uh, gefen grapes uteena figs. Uh, and then dvash is actually, it, in modern Hebrew means honey, but refers to dates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then rimon is pomegranates. And what did I miss in there? The, oh, and uh, zeit, zeit shemen, <laughs> um, oils that, olives that give oil, not uh-huh. oils that give olive. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, so those seven species, yeah, so that that the, the seder kind of revolves around. Right, and we... Um... You know, of course, different communities do these programs slightly differently, but the way we do it in our synagogue is um, we will try each food, each variety of fruit that we're eating, um, and we'll make the appropriate blessing over this food, and then talk a little bit about some of the symbolism of that particular food. And we also talk about intentions that we want to set for the year. Again, thinking about the hope, Ben, that you mentioned of the the buds of the new year, of the spring. And it's like so many other things in Judaism, just a festive yeah. meal where we come together in community. But maybe most importantly, we're eating and doing that over food. Of course. And right. And like you said, it's kind of this new year almost. And it's interesting because it is According to the Talmud, one of our, our oldest Jewish texts, there are four New Years, and this is one of them. So New Year number one, you all hopefully remember from Tishrei. <laughs> we talked a lot about it. Uh, the second New Year is actually in pa- right around Passover, and we'll talk about that more. Then you have one New Year that no one talks about, which is about the taxes. That like that only the <laughs> only the accountants like that New Year. Uh, and then the last one is the New Year of the Trees, and that's what this is: Rosh Hashanah la Ilanot. And so you do you have that idea of uh, of um, of intention setting, just like you would around any other new year, that idea of uh, of potential that comes out. Uh, and one of the things that I've seen at Tubi Shvat Seders that I really like is, in addition to these seven species, uh, you also try to eat fruits that kind of like fall into different categories. So like that have a peel but no pit or mm-hmm. that have a pit but no peel. Uh, like a, there, there's four of them. So it's inedible peel and inedible pit. So something like an avocado. Um, and then edible peel, but inedible pit. So like, you know, stone fruits, peaches, you know, plums, cherries, uh, edible, uh, no inedible pit, but does have an inedible peel. So like oranges or other mm-hmm. things like you peel, but then can eat the whole inside. And then fruits that you can eat the whole thing, like a fig or, uh, or a berry or something like that. So each of those also, um, has different symbolism. And one of the things about to be is that we're, one of the reasons we really celebrate it today was that it was kept around by the Jewish mystics, that these um, uh, rabbis from the kind of 15th and 16th century who got really into ideas of mysticism and meditation and trying to, you know, think of, you know, being in the world on different planes. Uh, and they got really into this idea of Tubishvat. And that the original Tubishvat Seder I went to uh, when I was living in Israel for a year in between high school and college. I was living in Haifa. And the only synagogue around me was this, like, very small Sephardi shul. Uh, or I guess they wouldn't have called it a shul uh, because that's Yiddish. Uh, but it was this very small um, synagogue. And I went on Tu because I was like, I don't know, maybe they're doing a Tu Seder. And their whole Tu Seder was just holding up different fruits and then reading a bunch of Aramaic from the Zohar that I did not understand at all <laughs> and then eating it. And I was like, I don't know what's going on, but but it seems cool. And so the Zohar, which is this kind of like very foundational text of Jewish mysticism, is where we got the Tu Bishvat Seder that now, you know, we celebrate in all sorts of different ways. And we celebrate, you know, different things and uh, and potential and new life and, and setting intentions. Uh, but at its heart, it was this kind of like mystical meditation on the fruits and their uh, – and their um, and their attributes and how we could learn about God through the attributes of the fruits and how that might change the way we see the world around us. And so I think it's very cool that what we have is kind of, you know, we think of as this kind of fun, you know, exploration of a new year also has these like deep mystical traditions of uh, of exploring the nature of, of the divine through eating fruit. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, we also, in our synagogue, I don't know if you do this, but we've started a tradition where we'll send 
seed packets out to families in the congregation just to give them a chance to plant in their own gardens and sort of take ownership over the land that they live on and grow something beautiful. That, do you do also like a communal harvest? Is there like a meal where everyone takes the food from their seed packets and like? No, but we should do that. That, that sounds amazing. Yeah, I, I love the idea of the the communal seed packets. I think that's very cool. Um, and right, and the opportunity as a community to all be planting and all be harvesting mm-hmm. together and having that connection to to where we are. Right. But now you're making me think, mentioning the mystics and the Zohar, that when we send these seed packets out, we should send also an Aramaic text along with it. You should. Um, to make the experience truly authentic. Right. Because if there's one thing that all of our congregants want, it's <laughs> some Aramaic text for them to work through. That's uh, that's something that I've always found as a rabbi is nothing gets the people going like some good Aramaic mystical text. Um, that For the record, I love Aramaic mystical texts now. Like I'm, I'm a rabbi and I really enjoy them. Just not every Jew on the streets thing necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> um, And one last cool tidbit, I suppose, about the month of Shvat is that my Hebrew birthday is just a few days after Tubi Shvat, the 19th of the month of Shvat. Wow. Well, a happy early birthday to you. Thank you. Um, Very excited. Yom Huledet Sameach. And Shani, how would we know that your birthday, the 19th of Shvat, is right after Tubi Shvat? How does does that compute? So the name Tubi Shvat actually has the Hebrew date sort of hidden within it. Two, actually, uh, I don't exactly know how to describe it, but the Hebrew letters, which symbolize the date, the numerical date, are tet and vav, which if you sound out phonetically, spell the word two. Um, And so tu bishvat tells us that it's the 15th of the month of shvat. Um, So sort of, again, in the name is the information about when exactly this holiday takes place. Right. And it's kind of unique in that. It's the only holiday that we really have that that has that kind of name built. I, well, okay, Tuba'av. That's true. Also, two. But it's the same. Yeah. yeah, it's the same. It's also the 15th because, right, that the, the Hebrew letters match up to numbers mm-hmm. um, that then you can kind of uh, create meaning for words that might be otherwise a little bit hidden. So, like, the word chai that people hear a lot, like, part of lechayim, or people wear necklaces with chai, um, it means life. And the yud and the chet, the, the two letters that put together, yud is, stands for 10 and chet stands for 8, you end up with 18. And so that's why oftentimes when people are giving gifts in the Jewish world, if you're giving a bar mitzvah kid a gift, or if you're donating to a good cause, you'll often do it in increments of 18. So if you run a nonprofit or if you are somewhere and you see that someone gives you a gift that's in either 18 or 36 or 54 or $180 or anything like that, probably came from a Jewish person <laughs> because we have this, this matching of numbers and letters uh, that expresses itself uh, similarly to, uh, to the name of this holiday, to Tu Bishvat. That's it for this month in Judaism. Stay tuned. After the break, we'll kibitz with Captain Promotable Jordan Disney and Leon Waba, who served in the 60s, and explore the history of Jewish military service. You're listening to the Bluegrass Schmooze. Welcome back to the Bluegrass Schmooze. Leon Waba graduated from the University of Louisville in 1967 and joined the U.S. Army. Upon his honorable discharge in August 1970, he started his banking career, which included the First National Bank of Louisville, Key Bank, and SunTrust. His career focused on the development of international trade, which included traveling overseas and domestically quite often. Leon retired in 2005 and chose to return to his hometown of Louisville. Welcome, Leon. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Yeah, And we have uh, also joining us Captain Promotable Jordan Disney. I didn't know that was a rank, but I'm learning things. <laughs> is closing in on 10 years of active federal service in the United States Army. Jordan began his U.S. Army journey through the Virginia Tech Corps of Cadets. Jordan, Cadet Disney at the time, came to Fort Knox, Kentucky for the first time while still in college in 2012. In the summer heat, he learned drill and ceremonies, small unit tactics, and basic soldier skills with other cadets from around the nation. 
Jordan's service has taken him to Oklahoma, Colorado, Germany, California, North Carolina, and now back to Fort Knox. He's worked in psychological operations and in 2020 deployed to the Middle East following Iranian aggression throughout the theater. Jordan is currently a branch chief in the U.S. Army Human Resources Command, overseeing the distribution of thousands of soldiers throughout the Army. The Disneys have two amazing children who I get to see all the time at Tat Shabbat, one of which was born here in Louisville. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Awesome. So uh, we'll start just by asking y'all a little bit about, we've heard your kind of uh, uh, formal bios, but can you give us your, your Jewish bio? Tell us your, your Jewish background, what, you know, growing up and, and your involvement now uh, in, in Jewish life. Leon, why don't we start with you? I was born in Egypt, and uh, very, very fortunately, we were able to come to America in October of 1959. Mm. We were sponsored and actually saved by the Jewish Federation of Louisville. Mm. Wow. Um, I've got cousins who now live in Brazil, Venezuela, uh, Panama, the U.S., Canada, Belgium, France, and Italy, and of course... Most of them still live in Israel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a sort of <laughs> I don't know, pretty secular, yet we belonged to the synagogue that was just across the street from us, mm-hmm. which was Anche Sfard, the Orthodox. Which is Orthodox, which right. Is Orthodox. <laughs> well, <laughs> it was just so convenient. Plus, right. Rabbi Rudman was our neighbor. His son was my best friend. Mm-hmm. So it was convenient to... Uh, be members of Andres Farder and uh, attend the uh, High Holy Day services there. Yeah. Uh, today, I've been quite active uh, with the Federation. I've uh, run the campaign. I was on the I was on the board for nine years. I uh, made it all the way to vice chair of the board. <laughs> and uh, today, my passion is uh, helping with the annual campaigns and the recent Israel emergency campaign where we not at all surprisingly, where uh, we uh, accomplished what we set out to do, which was uh, we had a goal of a million and a half, and we raised just a little bit over that. Wow. And wow. we did all this in just a month. So I'm active on, in the Jewish Community Relations Council, active with the campaigns. Wow. And yeah. that's it today. Thank you. Yeah, that's a, it's a phenomenon that's actually especially true. You said you have a lot of family in Israel of folks who are, more secular Jews, but the synagogue they don't go to so often is Orthodox. That's right. It's a, it's definitely a, a phenomenon. It's more common in Israel than in America, but right. but definitely one that, that it sounds like your your That's family right. was a, was a part of. Uh, Jordan, what about you? On a similar note, uh, we belong to Beth Tefillah, which is a large modern Orthodox shul, uh, but we were a little more secular. Uh, but that's where I went to high school, so I uh, you know had a strong Jewish education. Then I did a gap year in Israel um, on a few different programs um, and eventually made my way to Virginia Tech where I was pretty involved with Hillel and Chabad. Um, in fact, um, I needed a date my freshman year to a military ball and one thing led to another and that is Laura. Uh, so there's a whole backstory to that. But I went to Hillel looking for a date and uh, found a wife. Uh, so that was pretty cool. <laughs> and, and Hillel, I'll just say, uh, or uh, just for, for folks who don't know, is uh, on many college campuses around the country is kind of a, a Jewish home away from home uh, for, for Jewish students where there are uh, Shabbat meals and uh, and other Jewish programming on college campus. It's the largest uh, uh, college campus program uh, in America for Jewish students. Well, and, and uh, you know, I was one of the only Jewish people in the Corps of Cadets. Um, and one of the themes with American military is it's a very, very diverse organization, uh, but there's just not many Jewish people um, throughout the ranks. And when I wanted, when I knew I had to go find somebody to go to the ball with me, I wanted to go to Hillel. Um, And one of the only reasons I was allowed to leave the barracks was for religious purposes, but there was Mm -hmm. no religious holiday or anything. It was just like a a little uh, like youth ceremony thing that day. So I told the upperclassmen who all were not Jewish, and this was before smartphones, um, I told them it was a holiday called um, Yom Hashanah. And, uh, 
And for the audience at home, that's combining Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But I did that because I knew nobody would be able to check my work. Uh, one thing led to another, and it all worked out. Um, but um, moving on, I uh, commissioned into the Army as a field artillery officer. Uh, Laura and I got married, and then a day later went out to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Um, then we... Uh, in Fort Sill, uh, in Lawton, Oklahoma, believe it or not, not a large Jewish population. So we, uh, well, really, I, Laura went back to Maryland for a period. Um, I was a lay leader um, on the installation, uh, which was pretty interesting for me. I really took for granted, especially because I had that more secular mindset, I took for granted how much I knew uh, about Judaism. Um, that's kind of where I got my first taste of it. And then from that point forward, we've been very involved. Um, everywhere we go, we plug into the Jewish community or essentially start it if we can. Um, in Colorado, we started a group of young Jewish adults, and they're still going pretty strong. They've got like 60 people still meeting up, um, and That's we haven't awesome. been a part of that. Yeah, it was a, uh, you know, we take half the credit. There was a, another young lady who was looking for friends uh, who was our age bracket. Uh, and at Yom Kippur, I was away, but Laura was there and the two of them linked up and like, we need to start hanging out. And both of them are extroverts. And then I started bringing people, they started bringing people and it turned into this big thing that's still going strong. Um, and then, you know, uh, North Carolina, same story. We plugged into the community there. There was a synagogue, one synagogue um, outside of Fort Liberty, uh, used to be Fort Bragg. And now here at Louisville, um, it was a little hard when we first showed up because of COVID. Uh, but uh, we specifically chose to live in Louisville instead of Fort Knox because there's a large Jewish community here. And uh, as you know, uh, Rabbi Ben, we uh, are involved uh, to the best of our ability with KI um, and then also with the JCC. Yeah, it's actually the first time I heard about the fact that the Disney's had moved to town uh, was from uh, the the proprietor of a of a local bagel place, uh, Cold Smoke Bagel, uh, told me said, "Hey, there's there's this new family. They they just moved here. Yeah. They came to get bagels, and they're they're looking to connect yeah. with some Jews. And, and I think you should reach out to them." That's uh, very true. Our first week here, we it was I didn't have to sign in yet, so we were just exploring Louisville. And we went to Logan Street Market, and he had a menorah up on his uh on his stand so we just beeline to that uh, and we were like hey are you jewish <laughs> and it turned out uh absolutely and so we had a great conversation that's awesome wow. and to connect over bagels i can't think of a more jewish way to you know make that initial connection to another jewish family in town or a jewish community do we have a jewish chaplain at fort knox yes um he is actually the installation chaplain i believe but he is with fifth corps and they rotate to uh poland and germany a lot so uh getting a hold of him can be difficult because he's uh you know with all the stuff going on in europe he spends a lot of his time forward but yes absolutely right now uh there is a um a colonel uh jewish rabbi or jewish chaplain Excellent. Yeah, a few of the people that we went to rabbinical school with trained to be military chaplains, and um, it's really important work. Um, so we'd love to learn a little bit more about what, uh, Jordan, you mentioned a little bit, but um, Leon, too, what you did when you were in the service. So if you wanted to, we'll start, Leon, with you, if you want to tell us a little bit about your Gladly. Work. Well, I graduated in May of 1967 and had to report for my draft uh, physical on, I think it might have been the fourth day of the Six-Day War. Oh, wow. wow. And uh, so there we were. Of course, the Army always requires you to be there at 6 o'clock, but then you don't do anything until 9. <laughs> and we were all sitting around. I, I did not, I was not much of a smoker or never was much of a smoker, but that room was filled with with tobacco. And, and I was watching Abba Iban speaking at the United Nations mm -hmm. when somebody in the back yeah, why are we watching this? Captain Kangaroo is on the other channel. And a vote was taken, and I was shocked. <laughs> Everybody decided to switch the channel from Abba Iban addressing the United Nations to Captain Kangaroo. Mm. But that was a very long day. That was the day of my physical. Uh, later on, a few months later, when I actually reported for duty, I distinctly remember my first day in the Army. And... Um, Foolishly, somebody asked, do we have any college graduates in the bunch? And I raised my hand. 
And I've been told not to do that, but somehow <laughs> I thought, well, you never know. Maybe I'll get a nice, they'll assign me to something easier to do. Instead, they put me on KP, a kitchen patrol, I guess. <laughs> I think that's what it stood for. You had to be there at four in the morning. Oof. And I, it was the first time I'd ever smelled bacon cooked in huge quantities. Mm. I think that mess hall fed about three or 400 wow. very hungry soldiers. And just this, uh, not that we were kosher, but nobody in my family knew what to do with pork. So the smell just really got to me, and I, I was very uncomfortable. But that's just about the most vivid recollection that I have of my very first day in the Army. Mm. Wow. And but then, I, yeah, go ahead. I had a great surprise a few days later when it was Sunday, and it gives me opportunity to pay homage to a wonderful lady that served at the Jewish Community Center and was uh, always hosting a Sunday brunch for all the soldiers from Fort Knox. So my my surprise came the evening before when an announcement came out on the on the intercom. Uh, Catholic services tomorrow Sunday will be at 7 and 9. Protestant churches will be at 8 and 10. Jewish personnel can board the buses to the Louisville Jewish Community Center at 10 o'clock. I scratch my head and I go, wow, I live across the street from the Jewish Community Center. I can go home and visit the family. So sure enough, uh, we got on a bus at 10 o'clock and I went home. And uh, no sooner did I get there, that this wonderful lady, Annette Sagerman, who served at the Jewish Community Center for over 50 years and was always there each Sunday morning to greet all the Jewish personnel. And we had free use of the Jewish Community Center. Of course, nobody told us to bring our swimsuits or anything else. <laughs> and being just draftees, we were all in these uh, ugly uniforms. But uh, I checked with Annette, and Annette said, well, you know, the Army told us we're not allowed to leave the Jewish Community Center. She goes, go see your mom. <laughs> go see her. So I did. I walked across the, the what were then the baseball, uh, the softball uh, courts at the JCC, knocked on the door, and my mother sees me and goes, why, did you go AWOL? And, um, and that was it. But Annette... Sagerman, I think uh, just about everyone who grew up in this community mm. remembers her very, very fondly. Wow. She was a wonderful lady. And, uh, you know, some of the GIs uh, would... Were there a lot of Jews? Like, when they say, you know, Jewish personnel, you can go to the AGC. Like, how many of you were there? Well, and we'll ask Jordan in a second how many there are now. But, in like, In 1967, what was that like? it was the height of the Vietnam War. Yeah. If it, unless you were married or <laughs> going to graduate school, and I was neither, uh, you were drafted, particularly from... Where, where I live, just about everybody I knew who was graduating was getting drafted. So there would have been 20 to 30 Jewish personnel coming wow. to the JCC. And, of course, there were always a lot of um, nice young ladies who were there to greet them and meet them and so on. But most <laughs> of us were not there for very long. I mean, some people were only there for six weeks, 11 weeks, or what have you. But it was always very touching, and it's very... Mm -hmm. um, Really warms my heart to remember how how nice Annette was and everything that uh, she did for the Jewish personnel mm -hmm. stationed at Fort Knox. Wow, that's really nice. Wow. Jor was... Jordan is there. Like, what what is the Jewish contingent like now at uh, at Fort Knox? Are you um, and, and does it feel like there's an organized Jewish community on the fort? No, uh, to be honest with you, and uh, you know, take it with a grain of salt for me uh, in that. I've decided to plug into the Louisville Jewish community instead of the Fort Knox Jewish community. Mm -hmm. um, they do. There's always options for things. And the military strives, especially nowadays, to always make sure they if you come up and say that, hey, I'm Jewish and I need this, they will accommodate uh, to the best of their ability. So they try to, you know, no matter where you are, accommodate. But uh, generally speaking, there's just not many. Uh, I have not come across many Jewish service members. Now, with a name like Jordan Disney, it's not too obvious that I'm Jewish. Uh, but uh, whenever I meet a Levine or a Cohen or a Goldstein, uh, you know, I always run them down and, and start up that conversation. And nine times out of ten, we have a lot to bond over. But um, uh, like in my current organization, there was one other officer who was only here a year. Uh, but 
Dan Goodstein. He uh, is Jewish as well, as you can imagine. Uh, and so we uh, hung out a lot, but he also lived in Louisville. So he uh, plugged into the, the Jewish community of Louisville. Uh, and it was, it was really fun watching him kind of rekindle his Judaism because we were both previously stationed in kind of rural uh, North Carolina, and there just weren't that many, many options over there. Um, so it, it's sound. I'm so pleased to hear this and um, pleasantly not surprised that um, the Army and the military, the armed forces, are um, they really go above and beyond to accommodate uh, service members of various religions and faiths and practices. Um, but I'm curious if there are things that you have encountered or had encountered um, in your time in the service that that actually were very difficult about being Jewish. Um, so to think about that, and then on the flip side, some things that maybe enriched your experience of the service because you were part of even a, a small but a Jewish community nonetheless. Um, and maybe, Leon, we'll start with you. Okay. Well, I was really very fortunate in the military. Uh, the Army, in its infinite wisdom, decided to make a finance clerk out of me. I had a business degree. <laughs> and... Um, at the very height of the Vietnam War, I was very happy to have been stationed in Germany, although my mother would have preferred that I go to Vietnam. But, <laughs> but that was a long time ago, and uh, things were different. And, uh, in fact, I think I became, I don't know how I say this, more Jewish conscious when I was in the military. Hmm. And I owe this to the gentleman who was our chaplain in uh, Stuttgart, Germany, where I was stationed, Rabbi Saul Koss. Uh, Rabbi Koss eventually became, uh, once he retired, he became, I believe he was the uh, chaplain for the Washington, D.C. police force. Oh, wow. The formidable, formidable gentleman, now in his 80s. But of all the coincidences, his granddaughter, I should say, after he was <laughs> stationed in Germany, he was stationed at Fort Knox, and I came back from the Army, and we maintained our friendship, and and I was always very thankful because I was single, and my parents had now moved to uh, Philadelphia, but uh, he would always have us over for a Shabbat dinner in Germany, and then when I here in uh, at Fort Knox, his granddaughter is now married to the wife of the principal of the Montessori Torah Academy, run by uh, Rabbi oh. Lindell. Yeah. And his wife is a granddaughter of Rabbi Saul Koss, now mm. of uh, uh, Silver Springs, uh, Maryland. Small world. And, wow. uh, just, Jewish geography. Exactly. <laughs> and since she's been here, I've, I've been a little bit uh, uh, involved in uh, with the Torah Academy. Uh, it's struggling. It needs more students. And, of course, it always needs more resources. So we've help uh, run a couple of campaigns for them. And just this last last week it was, during uh, Hanukkah, I had the, my wife and I had the immense pleasure of being invited to their house for Hanukkah. Mm. Oh. And they have four the cutest kids, you can imagine, from seven <laughs> down to just a few months old. And uh, it was a great pleasure and a real honor to celebrate That's Hanukkah sweet. with them. Wow. The latkes were great. Just like my mother used to make them. Some were overcooked, some were undercooked. Some, but all in all, it was a great evening. Wow, that's beautiful. Really full circle. If I could ask, though, were there any times that it was hard, other than smelling the bacon on your first day? Um, were there, mo were there, you know, the army is this big melting pot. It's people being thrown together. Were there, was there anti-Semitism? Was it not so much? Was, you know, were there times where you were asked to do things that felt wrong or difficult? I was stationed right outside of Stuttgart in a small city where it was hardly impossible to get into trouble. And so I spent an awful lot of time in the library, and I learned all about the Lutherans. I was trying to figure out why is it that the Germans were so anti-Semitic, and I read up quite a bit about this. But quite frankly, in my engagements with the uh, local Germans, and of course being in the finance corps, we paid all the all the all the local personnel that uh, worked at the, on the base. And so you run into an awful lot. And, you know, we went to restaurants and, and uh, shows, and uh, we even had tickets to the, 
to the entire ballet uh, oh, wow. series. Mm. The Stuttgart Ballet at the time was like number one in the world, and I thought, well, that'd be a great place to meet some nice people. I, quite frankly, no, I did not run into any overt anti-Semitism while I was in the Army. I thought the Army was always going out of its way to make everybody happy. And, you know, I may have been spared that in that I was in a finance corps, and I would say that the overwhelming majority of my company uh, mates were all college-educated, and if they were anti-Semitic, they were careful to hide it. <laughs> so, no, I had uh, did not encounter any anti-Semitism. And, Jordan, what about you? So, you know, I, I joined in 2014, um, uh, or a commission in 2014, rather. Um, and quite frankly, the, I have never experienced overt uh, anti-Semitism as well. Generally speaking, uh, the most common thing I get is confusion or people are timid to ask questions because uh, a lot of times I'm the first Jewish, uh, overtly Jewish person they've met. Uh, I've had many rather humorous interactions uh, in that regard, uh, ranging from people asking if it's okay to say the word Jew instead of Jewish, uh, which was an honest, they, they were like, hey, is this a bad word? To which I told them no. Uh, but, uh, you know, for whatever reason, there is a stigma. So saying Jewish goes over smoother with uh, broader audiences. Uh, but then uh, just having conversations across the gambit. I, I remember I met this one guy. He was from southwestern Virginia, like as far west in the state of Virginia as you can get. And um he had never met a Jewish person. He asked me a hundred different ways why I don't eat pork. Um, <laughs> and I explained it to him and that he was just like, well, what about bacon? He's like, you got to try bacon. And I was just like, I don't eat bacon. And he's like, well, what about like pork chops? What about this? What about that? And I was just like, no, the whole animal, we don't touch. We don't like, and he's just like, what would happen if you did? I was like, I would digest it. What do you mean? What would it <laughs> so, there's been, uh, it's been an honor to kind of get to, uh, you know, be an ambassador for, for your people. It's also a little nerve wracking sometimes. Like um, I, my wife and I, we don't keep strict kosher, but we don't uh, eat pork and uh, generally don't mix milk and meat and things like that. But if I'm in front, when I was a platoon leader with an artillery platoon, we um, would get hot food every once in a while out in the field and they bring it out. And I remember one time, I was walking, and I forgot that to the platoon, you know, I was in charge of about 35 soldiers. Um, I was the only Jewish person they ever met, and they were very protective of that. Uh, and so I went to get some of the hot food. And let me tell you, it's not good food, but it's the only <laughs> thing that's hot. So uh, it was like chicken cordon bleu. So there's like a little piece of uh, ham or something in the center of it. Um, and there's, it's like smothered in cheese. Um and it, it was also probably cooked five hours before it showed up to us. But uh, <laughs> sounds I so appetizing. Up, yeah, yeah. And I was just like, "Yeah, I'll take one." And my like three or four people in the in the line with me were like, "Oh, sir, 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 don't eat that, don't eat that." I was like, <laughs> uh, "Why?" And they're like, "There's pork. We don't want you getting oh, in trouble." And I was so like, sweet. "I appreciate that. I really appreciate that." But until any of you guys are a rabbi or mashiach or anything in between. Uh, I'm going to eat this because it's the only hot food. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, I just may do with what it was. But uh, quite frankly, it's been, uh, you know, my platoon was the first platoon in the Army to have female combat arms soldiers, uh, mm -hmm. which was a bit of a drastic change. So, you know, with that backdrop, as far as me being a different minority, what kind of, uh, it was more a talking point than uh, like a, a problem at any point. And, it, uh, uh, you know, it's still the Army. So there's still some jokes, um, but that's kind of like the brotherly, sisterly uh, mindset, if you know what I mean. Um, but we, we get along really well, and I've had a very positive experience being Jewish in the military. That's really great. That's really great to hear. Yeah, Leon. I was going to ask you, does the Army still have the old tradition that in each chapel there's a, there was, at least when I was in the Army, there was a small kitchen with an oven that was totally dedicated to Jewish personnel so that we could warm up our, um, I, I know the rabbis in, the rabbi in Germany would provide us with these big cases of rokesh, 
R-O-K-E-A-C-H. Rokeach. Rokeach, I'm sorry. <laughs> Soup. It's a staple in my household growing up. Right. <laughs> and we would, you know, first of all, if you, since the Army did serve an awful lot of non-kosher food, Jewish personnel could apply for uh, an extra uh, a stipend so that they could eat off post or buy kosher food. And so I'd apply for that. But it's not as if the schnitzel or the that was served outside the post was any more kosher. But it was <laughs> but it was an advantage that we had that we could do and also they would always supply us with all La Choi Chinese food. I don't know if they still make it. It's the worst thing ever. Are they the ones who make soy? Well, I know the noodles, la yeah. choy, the like. Um, yeah, but it was noodles. kosher, yeah. and the army provided us, and, and that's where I first learned to appreciate Chinese food. <laughs> um, and I think back about how horrible it was. But I think the army did try very hard mm-hmm. to make everybody at least feel comfortable, feel at home, and um, I, I was very pleased with what the, each of the rabbis could provide us. And the fact that there was this little kitchenette on post that you could go yeah. and yeah, it was all yeah, wrapped it, in foil. <laughs> <laughs> they, um, uh, I have seen it on some installations. Essentially, there has to be a quote-unquote active uh, Jewish population on the base. Yeah. So, like here in Louisville, or I mean, sorry, here at Fort Knox, uh, every semi-serious Jewish per- or any person who wants to be involved with the Jewish community tends to gravitate towards Louisville because there's so many options. Um, so I haven't seen it on uh, Fort Knox, but at Fort Liberty, North Carolina, uh, there was a chaplain, a Jewish chaplain. He was a Chabad-ordained chaplain. But it was funny, I mean, he was in the 82nd Airborne, so this guy's jumping out of airplanes, doing all this thing, and then uh, on you know every holiday and stuff like that, he ran all the Jewish events for the installation. So it was a very busy job for him. Yeah. Um, he also spoke quite a few languages because I believe he was born in Turkey. Um, and so he was always being pulled away for different dignitaries coming to town because Fort Bragg, or excuse me, Fort Liberty, uh, they changed the name this summer, so I keep uh, switching it. But yeah. Fort Liberty um, has uh, some very large commands. So whenever somebody from NATO countries like Turkey come in or Israel or other places, he would always get pulled away to go do uh, translate. But he um, got one of the chapels essentially turned into a Jewish designated chapel, uh, even though the army doesn't designate chapels one way or the other. That's where we always met, and the co- the kitchen was kosher. Um, but it, it pretty much varies place to place. As far as separate rations for Jewish service members, we do have kosher and halal uh, meals for when we're in the field. Um, everybody, because it's different. Everybody thinks it's better. Uh, I can assure you it's not. Uh, <laughs> but, like Literally every time. Because, again, not many Jewish people requesting it, right? And so they'll sit in storage for a very long time. So by the time it gets to you, a lot of the expiration dates are like two years past. Uh, yeah, and it's like for a bag of trail, like the, you know, the thing with the expiration dates, a bag of trail mix or something like that. So it's still fine, but you're like... <laughs> Okay, this has been sitting there a long time. Uh, and, uh, I had requested it once or twice, but generally speaking, I just gravitate towards the vegetarian MREs uh, or chicken or you know whatever the case might be, uh, because I like those more. Um, but what was on a similar kind of funny note, when I was a, still an artilleryman, actually, I was the battalion S4, the logistics officer for a year. And so I coordinated all the ammo, all the food, all the water, all that type of stuff. And uh, the chaplain came to me and he was just like, hey, Jordan, here's a list of everybody requesting kosher MREs. And he handed it to me and he knew I was Jewish. And I was one of, in that battalion of 500, I was one of three people I knew that was Jewish. (laughs) And I look at this list and there's like 15 people on there. And I'm like, hey, uh, chaplain, (laughs) I don't think... These guys are Jewish, and he goes, "I'm not allowed to ask." He's, you know, he's, oh, right. He's, yeah, he's, yeah, he's not. He's not there to prove your religion, right? And so he's just like, "Can you get them food?" And I was like, "Am I allowed to ask?" And he goes, <laughs> "He's like, I don't." 
So I gave you the list. That's my part of this puzzle. And so <laughs> I, I went. I went to a couple of them, and they all knew me. I'm extroverted, so um, that I was just like, "Hey, uh, you know, these guys are from like not Jewish places." And I was just like, <laughs> "What? Uh, you want kosher amaretz?" Like, oh yes, yeah, sure, I'm Jewish. And I'm like, "Okay, can you name like five holidays?" And <laughs> every time they were like, "Uh, well," uh, and I was just like, "Listen, I'm going to order them." Uh, but when you know, when I prioritize making sure certain people get them, there's going to be certain people who get them first. Uh, <laughs> but you know, it's an army resource, and you know, at the end of the day, I'm not a gatekeeper. But I was right. cracking up because they they were like, um, uh, Hanukkah. <laughs> yeah, like, That's one. Is that the only one? Uh, so it was a uh, you know, again, it, instances like that for me make this a, a fun experience being a Jewish person in the. Uh, in the service. And as going back to your original question, Leon, uh, they do still try to accommodate. Um, it really depends on the situation. Uh, there was a special forces female, um, which is a new thing, right? Uh, not many female uh, soldiers have been able to join special forces uh, who grew up Orthodox. Um, you know, more details than that. I don't, uh, I can't really share, but she, uh, she and I, uh, went through training together for a while, and we talked about that. And she, to the best of her ability, maintained kosher style uh, whenever possible. So the Army will always do what it can to support its soldiers. So one thing that I find interesting, you both have talked uh, really beautifully about your relationships with Army chaplains. And one of the things that I learned when I did kind of a unit of of clinical pastoral care where I served as a chaplain just in a hospital for uh, for a summer was that oftentimes people who identify as chaplains are also caring for people who are not of their own religion. Right. So I know that, right, like, you know, there might be one Jewish chaplain, you know, in this area, but there might be a bunch of Catholic or Protestant or Muslim chaplains. Uh, did y'all have, as Jews, relationships with non-Jewish chaplains also? And, and, and what were those like, if you did? No, I didn't have any relations with the uh, non-Jewish chaplains, but I do know that the Jewish chaplain, Rabbi Goss, first of all, he was a formidable individual. He was very popular, very dynamic, and I and uh, well, we did spend quite a bit of time with him. And, and I knew from what he would tell us is that he would also counsel uh, a lot of non-Jewish personnel, mostly the ones having marital problems or drinking problems and that sort of stuff. Jordan. And yeah, so um, from my I'm not a chaplain, but from my understanding, chaplains their first duty is to their unit and to their to the, all the soldiers, um, as you alluded to. Um, and so, I've never had a Jewish chaplain in my unit, uh, but they're pretty rare uh, because just the size of the army. Uh, all that said, I've had a lot of great relationships with different chaplains of all backgrounds. Uh, for the most part, when they find out I'm Jewish and I'm an officer, so we're of uh, equivalent ranks, they love it because it's somebody that they can just talk to and like learn more about Judaism. Mm. Um, I found that to be a pretty common theme. Um, as far as leading services, when I was in Oklahoma, like I said, there was no, there, there really were not many Jewish people in Oklahoma um, in that area. I'm sure Oklahoma City had some, but uh the installation chaplain was a colonel, which is a pretty high rank, and he was a um, Catholic priest. And I had never met him, but uh, on Yom Kippur, I went to um, the service, uh, which I going all the way back to like what's difficult about being Jewish in the military. Requesting time off for mm. me is always difficult because I'm a workaholic. Um, so mm. requesting it to go to a service. I always feel like somebody's going to say no, but let me tell you, nobody, they always encourage it. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, have that stigma because at the end of the day, uh, we don't have time off for different Jewish holidays. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I requested to go leave um, the training I was in in order to go to the service for a few hours. I show up and there's this guy with a shofar and a tali and um, a yarmulke, and he starts to blow the shofar. And he starts to turn, and I see he has a whole bunch of badges that imply he's not a chaplain. And he continues to turn, and he's got so like combat badges and like uh, been in combat type of stuff that he's fired at and received fire and things like that in Ranger School and all these things. And he continues to turn, 
and I see he's a colonel, which is really weird. And he continues to turn, and I see the the emblem for the chaplaincy, and his was a cross. And I was so confused. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. who, who the heck is this warrior chaplain who's Christian? Like, what is he doing here? So I talked to him. Turns out he was the installation chaplain. Uh, and therefore, it falls under his domain to make sure that uh, Jewish services can be uh, administered. He had taught himself, I'm sure, through peers, um, how to play the shofar, the different calls and things like that. And he did it. Um, and wow. it, it was really kind of cool to see that. Uh, I'm sure, you know, philosophically, it wouldn't have jived, but it was, uh, it was really cool to be a part of an organization where they invest so heavily in supporting all people of different walks of life. Um, but yeah, and he was a Catholic priest. So yeah. Uh, wow. That's beautiful. That's a, Incredibly unique high holiday service. Yeah. Uh, it was so, it was so weird. I was so confused, and I was just like, "Sir, how did you get all these badges?" And he was like, "Oh, I was an infantry officer." So he went to West Point, became an infantry officer, uh, deployed in the surge in uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, I believe, uh, and then he uh, found the clergy, and then you know worked his way up that way. So because chaplains are non-combatants, they're not allowed to. Right. Uh, you know, hold a weapon and things like that. Yeah. Wow. Um, so I, this, I've been thinking about this, you know, for the time that we've been talking, and there's a pretty common question that we ask ourselves at Jewish summer camp, which is, are you, do you think of yourself as a Jewish American or as an American Jew, right? Which to, which part of your identity comes to the fore? Um, and it's so fascinating to hear you both talk about how um, positive and really special your experience as Jews in the military has been. Um, and I'm curious how you think about those two parts of your identity, especially serving in the United States military. Um, and has it shaped your you know, feelings of patriotism, your sense of American identity, um, has it deepened your sense of Jewish connectivity or Jewish identity? And how do those things go together? Well, I'm a refugee from a Muslim-majority country who mm -hmm. suffered some of the uh, uh, embarrassments and the anti-Semitism that uh, exists in the Arab world. And, you know, growing up in Egypt, whether it was myself, my father, or my grandfather, I think it's... We always thought of ourselves as being Jews first and then Egyptians. Uh, and I carried that for a long time when I first came to America. Mm -hmm. I remember one day in my, uh, I'd just been in America for a couple of months and I'm attending uh, Sunday school and, and the topic was precisely this. Uh, if there was a war between Israel and, and the United States, what side would you be on? And back then I thought, gee, what a silly question. Jews are Jews first, always, because that's the way Jews felt when we were in the mm -hmm. Middle East. Very respectful of the laws and uh, Jewish communities throughout the Middle East, from Morocco all the way to Iraq, have contributed an awful lot to the development of these countries. But they made us feel like we were not actually citizens of right. whether it's Iraq or Egypt or any of those places. So I did feel that way for a while, but but today I couldn't be more proud of being an American, mm -hmm. uh, very proud of what my government has done in terms of its support for Israel, whether it's the Republicans or the, or the Democrats. Uh, I think uh, today's uh, administration has been particularly supportive, and I'm very thankful for the actions of President Biden and uh, uh, Secretary of State Blinken and so on and so forth. So very much Proud to be Jewish, but even just as proud of being an American. Thank you. And Jordan? So for me, um, you know, the first time I got asked that question was ninth grade, and it was, are you an American Jew or a Jewish American? And at first, I had always knew, known I wanted to join the American military, so I was just like, oh, I'm uh, a Jewish American. I'm American first. But then, you know, I, I was always nagging in the back of my head, um, and I was always like, well, you know, w like I was doing a lot of soul searching. And then my year in Israel really kind of uh, put the, you know, the nail on it where 
I realize I am an American Jew. To me, the noun that I am is a Jew, uh, first and foremost. Um, but I believe in the ideals of America uh, more than almost anything else, because in the United States, you can be almost any background, almost any uh, you know ethnicity, uh, race, religion, et cetera, et cetera. And our military and our government is designed to support that. Um, and so... Uh, that w- always kind of resonated with me uh, because, you know, when, especially when I was in Israel, a lot of people said, if you're Jewish, you should be joining the Israeli military, not the American military. Mm-hmm. And I got that all the time. And I was always I had to do a lot of searching to to think. And it dawned on me, one, there's I think there's more Jewish people in the United States than Israel. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers. But two, both of those countries are designed to support Jewish life. Uh, one, as uh, as a soul, like Israel supports Jews, but then America supports pretty much all minorities and majorities, et cetera, et cetera. And that really kind of jived with me. So at the end of the day, you know, my Judaism is who I am, but I really believe in this country and what it exists for um, and, and the ideals behind the founding of this country. So, um, but it was something I had to grapple with quite a bit. Um, and I've had a lot of good conversations and Humvees with different service members about that. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Um, okay. I have a very important question. <laughs> You've both served at Fort Knox. Have you seen the gold? And can you tell yeah. us where it is? Never seen the gold. We just know it's there somewhere. But I, I like to add to this. <laughs> just a, about a year or so ago, I went back to Fort Knox uh, to visit... Uh, the Patton Museum, which was very impressive. It was something to do. My wife and I and a neighbor, along with, uh, of blessed memory, uh, Dr. Ronald Levine, mm. who uh, passed away recently, but he had been stationed at Fort Knox as well. And we went on a tour of Fort Knox after visiting the museum. And what a difference from what it was like 55 <laughs> years ago when I was stationed there. Today I saw, I think, a Burger King and a Taco Bell. We just had these crummy PXs where you could only get a, a, a hot dog like the ones you find today in, in convenient food stores. <laughs> and uh, it, the whole base seemed to be, uh, I don't know, a little homier, a little more comfortable. It didn't mm-hmm. have that. Of course, I was there in the fall and in the winter of 1967, and the weather would change twice or three times a day, and that was the the big joke among the uh, out of towners. Who was like, <laughs> oh, in Kentucky, the weather will change two or three times a day. <laughs> but uh, the camp today seems to be, a, I mean, Fort Knox today seems to be a lot more comfortable mm. than it had been back in '67. And I have not seen the gold either, um, and I do attest that it is a comfortable installation. Yes. <laughs> what's what's Kind of funny. Uh, a lot of people who are stationed here call it a gem in the army because most people hear Kentucky and they're just like, nah, I don't want to. I don't want to go there. Uh, but you know, when when you have Hawaii and Germany as options, uh, you, you don't always preference uh, Radcliffe, Kentucky as number one. But um, <laughs> uh, that being the case, people uh, nine of the ten service members you meet on Fort Knox absolutely love it. Uh, one of the reasons is there's a whole bunch of senior commands, uh, a lot of generals on Fort Knox, uh, but then all of their uh, units are kind of spread throughout the Army. So like ROTC headquarters is at Fort Knox, hmm. but all the people who work for ROTC are at college campuses around the world right, or around the country. Um, so you have a lot of senior people, which tends to mean it's a pretty mature Insulation, uh, you know, there's a lot of activities that are geared more towards families and stuff like that, as opposed to single soldiers. They do have things for single soldiers and stuff, but it's, uh, you know, if you, uh, the parks there, uh, uh, there's a nice commissary, there's a nice uh, PX and things like that, like shopping areas and stuff. So it is a very nice space. Uh, but again, no gold uh, that I've seen. Mm. All right. We'll have to keep searching. Um, <laughs> Shani, do you want to take us into the lightning round? Yeah, sure. We're going to move into our lightning round, which is a series of questions, quick questions that we ask all of our guests. Um, And we'll just alternate Leon, Jordan, Leon, Jordan. So, Leon, we'll start with you. Your favorite Jewish holiday? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. (laughs) Jordan? For me, probably Pesach, Passover. Yeah. 
both good options. All right. Uh, Jordan, we'll go to you first for this one. Honey cake or apples and honey? Honey cake. Ooh. Yeah, me too. Honey cake. <laughs> My son would disagree. My three-year-old would disagree. <laughs> well, whatever, at that age, whatever's messiest, right? Messiest right. and stickiest. <laughs> yeah. Um, Leon, best Purim costume that you remember wearing? Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus, the king. Nice. Yeah. I... <laughs> At our temple, we lived in Cleveland for some 30 years, mm-hmm. and we were members of uh, Temple Tefereth Israel there. And one year, I was a Hashoeris. Nice. Jordan? Um, for me, Laura and I dressed up one time as old, stereotypical old Jewish people. No disrespect, <laughs> Leon. Uh, but was, <laughs> uh, so I had to get a jab. But, uh, the, uh, so we were in, uh, I was wearing high. Uh, my shorts were pulled all the way up past my belly button uh, with high white socks and everything else that you can imagine. Amazing. <laughs> um, Jordan, best breakfast food for right at the end of Yom Kippur. What are you going to first? Uh, my synagogue always had munchkins as a because there was a kosher Dunkin', Dunkin Donuts, Donuts in Baltimore. Um, and so they always had... Um, a whole bunch of munchkins sponsored, and I kind of always remembered that. Um, nice. And so I, I still stick with something sweet whenever possible, if I'm not in the field or something. Nice. In my family, we always broke the fast with barricas and lime uh, limeade. Ooh. Limeade always so sort of quench, uh, yeah, yeah. quenches your thirst and barricas all kinds. Nice. Um, your favorite biblical character? Uh, go ahead, Leon. <laughs> uh, King David. It's a good one. Great. Yeah. Jordan. And I, I, th- I think I'd go with Moshe, Moses. Nice. Both, both major leaders. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> may, may, makes sense with, with the folks we're talking to. Uh, and then yeah. finally, uh, Jordan, you first. Latka or Hamantashen? Latka. <laughs> Latka. It's the the consensus choice. Leon, you going with it too? <laughs> God, it's so difficult. Oh. I love them both. <laughs> but which, if you if you had Latkes, 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 yeah, yeah, that is the correct answer. That's yeah. what we say. To I would say, yeah, that is that is what the vast majority or everyone. I, I think, think almost everyone, almost everyone has said yeah. has said Latka over Hamantashen. Um, oh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, Leon, we had a, a chance to be different. <laughs> yeah, sure. what's you gonna do? Um, and then we, we close out our, our episodes with a L'chaim of the month. And the, this L'chaim can be for a person or an organization or a group of people uh, who you just want to um, either say L'chaim to because they've done something wonderful in the past, you know, few days or a month or that they're looking forward to something uh, or, uh, or anything like that. So uh, a L'chaim of the month is uh, just uh, uh, so- someone that you want to honor uh, this month. So... Leon, do you have a L'chaim of the month that you want to give us? Absolutely. I've always been very appreciative of what the Jewish Federation of Louisville did for mm-hmm. me and my family. I still remember arriving on a cold October day, and there were these three wonderful ladies from the National Council of Jewish Women who met us at the train station, took us mm-hmm. to our first apartment, and, and you know, we had been in a uh, displaced, what do they call it, DP camp. I forgot mm-hmm. what that stood mm-hmm. for. But uh, we were there for a couple of months waiting for the papers. I was only 13, but <laughs> just waiting for the final authorization to come to to America. And uh, the reception we received, the warmth that we felt, uh, we were invited by each and every synagogue, uh, joined, a, uh, invited. In fact, we had a free one-year membership at the JCC that we oh. used a lot. So definitely... Um, Elahayim to the Jewish Federation of Louisville and its uh, J- uh, Jewish Community Relations Council mm-hmm. that I have served on for the last 19 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, great. Great organizations. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. L'chaim. L'chaim. Uh, and, and for those who aren't aware, a Jewish federation in a lot of places is kind of like almost like a Jewish united way. It's an umbrella organization that uh, collects money. There's a, there's a campaign, a fundraising campaign, and then gives money to a lot of different Jewish organizations within the community. They allocate money out. Uh, and so that helps to support the community as a whole. So it's kind of this central body. It's not a governing body because Jews can't 
be governed by anyone, <laughs> including ourselves. Um, but it's kind of a central convening body and a central fundraising body to help support the Jewish community. Uh, my mom happens to be the executive director of a federation in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So oh. I have a deep love for the federation as well. Uh, yeah. But uh, that's a, a beautiful lachaim, Leon. Thank mm-hmm. you. Uh, Jordan. For me, uh, you know, in light of world events, uh, I would have to say all the college Jewish organizations, particularly Hillel and Chabad, have meant a lot to me and my wife. But um, all the, you know, people working really hard to combat some of the stuff going on on college campuses, um, I tell you, L'chaim to them, they're doing a a great job, a really hard job. uh, And I can't imagine how tough it is every day. So um, I think I'd like to highlight them. Yeah, L'chaim. L'chaim. Um, For me, so at the time that we're recording this, we're, right, we've just finished Hanukkah. We came, we're at the end of a school semester. And I think I want to give my L'chaim to um, our daughter's preschool teachers who just every single day put in so much extra love and care and um, just bring a lot of warmth and joy to her life and to our life and um, just want to thank them for being part of our village. So L'chaim to all the teachers and staff at Gonshalom Preschool in Lexington. L'chaim. And my L'chaim is going to go to uh, when this airs is going to be in the month of Shvat in uh, in January. uh, And I will be heading up to Chicago for my cousin's bar mitzvah. So uh, Petey, uh, this month's uh, this month's L'chaim is to you. Uh, and then I'm also going to throw in my other cousin is also having her bat mitzvah a couple months afterwards in Chicago. And so, Sadie, you also get the l'chaim this month. You won't get your own in a couple of months because, you know, I only get one a month. But uh, <laughs> Petey and Sadie, uh, you're both wonderful and just such menches. And I really look forward to going up to Chicago to celebrate y'all. Mm-hmm. So l'chaim to the two of you. L'chaim. L'chaim. Uh, and thank you, uh, Leon and Jordan, for joining us today for – Um, our discussion. It was so rich and lovely to learn from you both um, and to hear a little bit more about your experiences as Jewish service members um, in the U.S. military. And we're always so delighted to have um, guests to join us for the schmooze. Um, And we hope that we'll be seeing you both around Louisville. And maybe we can schedule a visit to Fort Knox if that's allowed. Yeah. And, th- and don't forget the Patton Museum. The Very Patton Museum. <laughs> and, and, and thank you all for your service. It's a, We really appreciate yes. you all uh, uh, and everything that uh, you have done and, and continue to do uh, for us. Uh, and it, it has been great schmoozing with you. Thank you. Thank Absolutely. you so much. Thank you. The Bluegrass Schmooze is created and produced by Rabbi Shani Abramowitz and me, Rabbi Ben Fried. Our executive producer is Laura Ellis. Production assistance from Alex Biscardi. Our opening and closing song is Jew from Kentucky, written by Dan Byrne and performed by Dan Byrne and Bridget Kalin. Thanks to Knesset Israel Congregation in Louisville and Ohave Zion Synagogue in Lexington for believing in two young rabbis and helping us make this podcast a reality. Our show is made possible by support from the Jewish Heritage Fund. The Bluegrass Schmooze is a part of the Louisville Public Media Podcast Incubator with support from the iCare Institute's Butchertown Clinical Trials. Find us on Instagram for lots of extra content. We're at Bluegrass Schmooze. Or send us an email at schmooze at lpm.org. To keep in touch and to learn how you can help us continue this work, visit bluegrassschmooze.org. We're Jews from Kentucky. That's what we are. We drink our mint juleps from a kosher dill jar. Wherever we wander, wherever we roam, Jews from Kentucky is always at Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic. 